holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen? Amen. It's so good to sing those songs. I thank God for our choir. As churches move away from choirs, um, I'm so glad that our leadership keeps a choir because they just give us a, a beautiful glimpse of the holiness of God. This morning, uh, inside your um, bulletin, you'll find a personal survey that I would ask you to take out. And I will, as we go through the sermon today, go through the message, the survey will accompany the message. And as I've been getting ready for my ordination, working with Pastor Rick and Pastor Steve over the last year, um, I've been asking myself three questions. And this, these three questions are not just for, for pastors or, or leaders. They're for all Christians. Um, and the three questions are, what do I believe the word of God says? What are my convictions? And how would I answer questions based on what the word of God says? So my goal today, as, as you look at your survey, uh, I'm going to take us through five questions, three points, one story, and I'm going to do that in 30 minutes. Are you ready? So let's begin with the first question. The first question on your sheet says, does God have the right to keep you accountable? Does God have the right to keep you accountable? Based on the knowledge of scripture, based on what you know now, how would you answer that question? That's the first question I want you to answer before we read our story today. Does God have the right to keep you accountable? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We draw close to you now. We pray by the power of, of your Holy Spirit that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds, and teach us from your truth. God, we love you, and we know that it is a valuable moment to spend with you at this, at this time. So God, I pray that we would not walk away from this, this day without putting into play the things that your, that your word says. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Over the last seven weeks, we've been doing a, a study together in our small groups, talking about God's rights over our rights. And this week, we move to, to chapter 7, and it's called Achan, Sin in the, Sin in the Community. The, script, the, the story that we will look at in our smaller group tonight is found in Joshua 7. And the story is tucked between two battles, the Battle of Jericho and the Battle of Ai. But I want to back us up a moment so that I want to zoom out a little bit so that we can see the, the story in a bigger context so we'll know how it fits not only to our small group but to our lives as well. So God chooses a man. I'm going way back. Before, Jer before Joshua, God chooses a man named Abraham and makes a promise to him. Abraham's family become the children of God and they're enslaved in Egypt. And through a man named Moses, God rescues and leads the children out of Egypt. He made a covenant with the people at Mount Sinai and he brings them through the wilderness. So Israel is now camp camped outside the promised land and Moses calls them to obey God's commands and to show all the nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died and Israel is ready to enter the promised land. The book of Joshua begins with the Lord talking to Joshua and telling him that he must cross the Jordan River, enter the promised land, and then he needs to be strong and courageous. This is said three times in the beginning of Joshua. Everything or anything that we know that anytime God says something three times, we take that as very important. So God is telling Joshua that he needs to be strong and courageous as he leads the people. God warns Joshua to keep the book of the law, 1-7, always on his lips. He says, do not depart from it, meditate on it day and night, 
and he will be prosperous and successful. So Joshua is to take the word of God very serious and to allow the word of God to lead him and the people. Joshua sends spies to Jericho to check out the land. They meet Rahab the prostitute. We know that story. They have a plan of attack, uh, a plan to attack the city, and Joshua begins this journey. We're heading towards the first battle before we get to our passage that we're going to look at. So we're on the way. So the first obstacle they have is getting across the Jordan River. And this is a, this is a big river. They can't just walk across it like a stream. Um, it's harvest time, and the river is flowing. And God stops the flow so the people can walk through on dry land. Now, for me personally, if you know me, I don't like swimming. And Back on the East Coast, we would take college students and youth uh, on a, a whitewater rafting trip every year. Every summer, we'd go on this whitewater rafting trip. We'd get to the place. We'd look at the river. I'd be terrified. We'd get in the boat, and we'd jump on the, uh, go onto the river. And secretly, I was praying that God would just dry up the river <laughs> so that we would just have to cancel the trip and then go home. And also, halfway down this, this river... The, the guide would say, okay, this is not a class four rapid. This is like a class two rapid. You can jump out of the boat and just kind of go down the river, just floating. No dice for me. Like, I'm not doing that. I, I would stay in the boat. So to see God stopping and, and stopping the flow and the people walking on dry land, this is the first miracle uh, we've seen with God and Moses at the Red Sea, and he's done the same for Joshua. Joshua's thankful. They're halfway through. He commands the, the leaders uh, to take 12 stones from the river and build a monument so future generations will know the power of God. This leads us to the first battle. Battle number one. The battle of Jericho. So many people know the story. Jericho is a huge city with huge walls. And God tells Joshua to lead the, all of the warriors around the city once and to do this for six days. While they are marching around, God tells Joshua that he wants seven priests to carry a signal horn and to march blasting their signal horns while the Ark of the Covenant follows. And we know from reading God's word that the Ark of the Covenant represents God's presence. So they're marching around, God's presence is with them, they're blowing the horns. This is to be done on day one through day six. And then on day seven, we move into some very important details from the scriptures that kind of set up where we're going today. Joshua 6, 17, I'll read it like this, or I'll read it. The seventh time around, when the priest shouted the trumpet blast, sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it will be, is, all in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Let me say that again. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall be spared. Because she hid the spies we went, when we went. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and all the gold and all the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord, and they must go into his treasury. So, they shout, the walls come down, Rahab is spared, city is burned, Israelite leaders, high five all around. We did this. Victory, victory, victory is ours. This is an important moment in the time of Joshua in the Israelites as they're moving into the promised land. Now we turn to our Bibles for Joshua 7. Here's where we pick up the story. 
But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, he took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. This leads me to question two. On your personal survey as you're sitting there, does God have the right to be angry when we disobey him? Based on what we're reading, does God have the, have the right, God's rights over our rights, to be angry when we disobey him? How would you answer that question? See, God has given provision. He has made a way. He has done things, amazing things for his people. He shows grace to even the enemy. Rahab and her family is spared. But Israel sinned against the Lord. Does God have a right to be angry when we disobey him? Joshua was told by God to take over the promised land. It was promised to Moses and, and then passed on to Joshua. And they were going to take this land that was full of milk and honey. And they were to, they're going to drive out all the, all the people that were there. So Joshua goes and leads to the people against Jericho and they burn the city down and they're leading, they're going on to the second battle to clear the land. See, the Israelites, they're fresh off a huge victory. They listened to God, they took over the city, they burned it to the ground. Jericho is now out of the way. We are victorious as God's people. There is courage in the hearts of God's people. I can imagine them saying to each other, we can do anything with God but there's sin in the camp. Joshua, the leader, doesn't know it yet. And based on the commands of God, he sends spies to, the, to gather info on the next attack. The city is small. The, sp the spies come back and report, don't trouble the whole army. Send two to 3,000. Joshua goes with the greater number, sends 3,000 of the army, but they are defeated and 36 killed. 36 killed. And at this, the heart of the people melt. The, heart, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water, it says in 7.5. Just a little bit earlier in chapter 5, we hear, because God had dried up the Jordan and they had walked through, a report went out to the land, to the promised land that they were going to take over. And it, said that, and, and it says in 5.1 that the, all the Amorite kings and the Canaanite kings heard that God had dried up the river. And it says that their hearts melted in fear but now we see that God's people, because of sin, it has happened to them as well. My first point today is that hidden sin always brings defeat and discouragement to God's people. I'll say it again. Hidden sin always brings defeat and discouragement to God's people. See, the hidden sin brought about defeat, and Joshua, the leader, has a moment of doubt and begins to question God. We see this in 7, verses 6 through 9. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring the people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we have been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. We see this as Moses was leading the people out of Egypt and they get to, into the wilderness and things start to happen and they, they begin to see this is rough. They say the same thing. The people that were with Moses say, why did you, was there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out into the wilderness to die? Remember, remember when we were back in Egypt 
They're forgetting they were slaves, but they go, remember the leeks and the, and, and the, the vegetables that we had? We see the same thing right now when travesty and hard, heartache comes and, and hard trials come. Joshua, once again, results back to a time when it was safer. Verse 8, he says, pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now? That Israel has been rooted by its enemies. The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe our, our name from the earth. What then will you do for your, your own great name? We see from this scripture that disobedience to God is a contagious disease that has serious effect on the broader community of believers See, my sin cannot be isolated from, your, from you, and your sin cannot be isolated from me. Sin corrupts, and what is done in private has a public effect. We see from the scripture, because Achan took things that were devoted to God, devoted to destruction, and he hid them in his own tent. We're going to get there in a second. I'm just jumping ahead for a, so, just a minute. He took these things. 36 men died. His sin caused 36 other men to die. 36 families devastated. 36 families, no father, brother, son, because he took something that wasn't his. Pastor Ken Hughes in the book, Living on the Cutting Edge, shares that hidden sin doesn't just affect the one, but the whole, because believers have a profound solidarity with one another. The Bible, when properly understood, does not teach individualism anywhere. And the New Testament describes of the church, uh, de descriptions of the church carry the idea even farther. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 4, just as one body through one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ, for we are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one, but of many. When we think that of the context of the church, you don't walk in here as an individual, you don't walk in here as an individual family, you walk in as the family of God. And what you do outside of our gathering affects our gathering. Ephesians 1, 22, 23 goes on to say how important it is for us to be a part of the body. He says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What is the lesson for us? We are one in Christ, and we as the church need to take sin serious. God takes sin serious. In fact, it was God who brought the sin issue up to Joshua. We'll get there in a moment. But I want to just show us that sometimes, that many times, when things don't go our way, we begin to have something that I would like to call a Joshua moment. See, many times leaders, they look at what's happening in the, in the church and in the culture, in the schools, dare I say politics as well, and they're tempted to challenge God on his sovereignty. God, what is going on? God, what are you doing? God, why are you not blessing the vision, the efforts of the church? God, what will, be, what will people think of your name? Church members begin to grumble about leadership. And just at this point in this reading, in this case, it's not the leadership. Joshua teaches us of, but Joshua does teach us a vital posture. So pastors, 
elder, elders, deacons, we need to take notice of this, that Joshua is on his face before God. He's praying. He's calling the other elders to pray before God. That's an important thing for us to remember as leaders of the church. And please know that your staff here, we love you. We care for God's word. We are praying that God would continue to have his hand upon our church, that he would begin to speak the vision to Pastor Rick and us rally around him. And we are praying. We are praying that God would have his way here. But the leadership was not in sin at this moment in this passage. It was those they were leading. The other side of the coin, the one with the hidden sin, thinks it's contained. My sin is not hurting anyone. Here we see Joshua question the plans of God and Achan believing he's getting away with, the, with his hidden trespasses before the Lord. Even today, we see believers of this world questioning God and his word. We see sin and all its destruction kept quiet, temporarily contained. In the last few years, we've seen pastors who've been given elevated platforms to, pro to proclaim the kingdom of God fall into deep patterns of sin and not only end, uh, end being qualified, disqualified from ministry, they hurt the name of Christ and the sheep they pastor. The churches they lead are broken, disheartened, and the people there begin to, to begin to question God. Over this last year, we've seen many, many pastors in the States because of hidden sin in their life, um, God, is, God exposes it. And one, one church in the States, I'm not gonna mention their name, but I love them. I've been following them for a long time, and this happened. I went to Pastor Rick. We had a, gr a few moments together just praying for this church and just praying for these people. I was, I was so moved. I was so upset because of the sin, of how sin affects local bodies, that I sent their deacons a message, just a letter, and they wrote back thanking Calvary for praying for their church, thanking Calvary for thinking about them as they deal with uh, restoration in the body. Sometimes it's the leadership. Sometimes it's the people they lead. Either way, sin always brings defeat and discouragement to God's people. Point number two is that hidden sin will be exposed. Joshua 7, 7 through 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? I love that. <laughs> Get up. It's time for action. He says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in their own possessions. God is calling them out. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they have been made liable to destruction. It's an important phrase right there. Liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. God is speaking these words. Which leads me to question number three on your personal survey. Does God have the right to address our sin? Does God have the right to address our sin? How would you answer that? A few things to note, that God says Israel has sin and not just one person, not just Achan. He said that the whole body has sin. As part of the body of Christ, when one of our sisters and brothers sins, we need to take this very serious. 
God looks at the church as a whole, and the whole body needs to be clean. If we know sin is happening in the church and we're not addressing it, what does that say about our devotion to God? The seriousness of God's word and the witness we portray to all who are watching. What does it say? Hebrews 12.1 reminds us, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, the church, the body, those who are gathered here today, throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's run the race and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. See, I believe that God has a plan, not just for all churches, but for our church too, and that he has marked out a race for us. And for us to run the race, we need to be in God's word, before God's throne, keeping each other accountable and throwing off all those things that hinder us. As the church, if we're going to throw off everything that hinders us, we need to know what that everything is. What sin is God addressing? What sins are holding back us as a church? Why are we not confessing them and moving forward on the kingdom advancement quest? A part of discipleship is confession. Verse 12 says, this is why Israel can't stand against their enemies. As we know it from the word of God, it says sin, sin is wreaking havoc on the church of today. Many are weak in faith and do not know the word of God to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The verse says that we, are, we have been made liable to destruction. The New Testament shares that, that the devil prowls around looking for one to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8, and that we do not fight against people, but against powers and principalities and demons uh, have been watching man since the beginning. There are demons watching us here today. They look at the church body. They look at those who are weak that do not take the word of God serious, and they begin to poke at them. Maybe I can set a trap for them. We see this in the word. We look back at Adam and Eve. The servant knew the word of God. He was around God's creation. He was around God's people. And he was even bold enough to challenge them. He knew the word of God, the commands, and he twisted the word to cause Eve to stumble. We read in that, that creation passage that, that after they sinned, what did they do? They ran and they hid. And we have this moment where God begins to walk in the garden, and he yells out, Adam, where are you? In the sovereignty of God, God didn't need to ask that question. He knew where they were. And that's the reality of what we do. We're just like our father, Adam. When we sin, we want to hide. And God sees all, and he knows all. Self-righteousness and self-justification they have taken the place of God in today's culture. What I deem right and just is right and just. But please take note that what is done in the darkness will be brought to the light. Luke 12, 2 says this. There's no such thing as hidden sin. For God sees all and he knows all and he knows the intentions of each and every heart. See, I asked if God had the right to address our sin. And as I was putting that together this week, I filled out the form myself. And I checked the box, yes. But I just want to be honest for a moment. 
I don't want God to, I don't want to come to the place where the Holy One, the Holy, Holy, Holy One of God that we seek, that we speak about, that we sing about, I don't want to come to the place where he is addressing my sin. I don't want God to call me out. Nick, you've sinned against me. See, I want to get, I want to run to God before he calls me out in confession and a contrite heart. A contrite heart is defined as showing sincere remorse filled with a sense of guilt and the desire for atonement. But that can't happen if I don't know the word of God. So that, for me, I need to be in the word of God. I need to know what it says so that I will know if I'm coming against him in sin. This can't happen if I'm self-reliant. So it's important for not only me, but us as the church to seek God out through his word and to live lives that reflect his righteousness that has been given to us through the sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews 3 moves on to say this, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. This is an important passage for us. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to the original convictions firmly to the end. I want to say this Sunday morning, our gathering is so very important. And Pastor Rick does a fantastic job listening to, the, listening to God and preaching. But I have to say that Sunday is not enough. We need to be in God's word every single day. We need to be calling each other up. We need to be challenging each other because the days are evil and our hearts are sinful. And we need the testimony and the encouragement of the believers to point us back to Christ. Not just on Sunday, every day. That's why it's so important for us to gather in small groups. That's that's why it's so important for us to challenge each other through the week in love, in grace, so that we will stand firm on the things that we believe. We need each other to challenge each other, to encourage each other in the things of God. So Joshua, he goes back to the people. He goes back to the people of God to find out where the devoted things are hidden. He tells the people to consecrate themselves. Get ready. Make yourself clean. He tells the people there are devoted things among them. And that they cannot stand against their enemy until they're removed. See, that was the address that day that their leader, Joshua, came before the people of God and said, we're not going forward until sin is out of the picture. And we can't go forward until sin has been removed. Because God said he is not going to go with us if we continue to sin. Like Joshua, the word speaks to us today. See, I believe that God does have a plan for his church but he's not gonna go forward with us if we just continue to sin. We need to get real with the things of God. So the, so the word goes out, they're sitting in the camp and they have 24 hours to get ready for the investigation. And question four says, on your personal survey, do you believe that, does God have the right to offer mercy. Does God have the right to offer mercy? See, God gave the people time to prepare. There, were, there was ample time for Achan to come before Joshua and confess his sin, to give back the devoted things, to seek forgiveness. But as we read in the scriptures, he did not do that. 
So Joshua had to go tribe to tribe, family to family, looking for the one who had sinned. And can you just picture this? As I was preparing this week, I was trying to picture that moment. Joshua is going through each family, trying to figure out who's the one that is holding back the whole camp from moving forward. And he finally gets to Achan. He finally gets there. And he says, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done, and do not hide it from me. And then Achan finally confesses. After he has been caught, after he's been called out, what an embarrassing moment for Achan and his family in front of the people. Achan confesses to his trespasses and even shares um, that he broke the 10th commandment of the law, that he coveted. Achan knows God's commands, but he chose to sin against God. How many of us who come to church week after week, who lead small groups and chair boards, know the word of God, but still choose to go against him, gratify the fleshly desires. This leads me to my last point, point number three. The cost of sin is something we can't afford. See, the cost of sin is something we can't afford in the church. So we don't have enough good deeds, enough compliments, enough volunteer hours if we were to gather them together. We don't have enough money to cover the cost of the sin that we have committed in the church alone, and I'm not even talking about the world. For God said the payment of such trespasses against his holy word is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, and the only thing that covers the trespasses of our sin is to give up one's life. But still, even with that, to give up our life, we fall short. Then Joshua told, then Joshua together with all of Israel took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bars, his sons and daughters, his cattle, his donkey, his sheep, his tent, and all that they had, and they took it to the valley of Achor. Joshua said to them, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all of Israel stoned him. And after they have stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place is now called the Valley of Achor. In the valley of Ahor, Achor, the valley of trouble, stands a pile of rocks as a sign for the people that sin is something they cannot afford. How are we going to pay for our sin? How are we going to pay for our sin? We can't. You and I, we can't pay for our sin, which means we are in trouble with the Lord. But the good news is the gospel. The good news breaks forth like dark, from the darkness. The gospel is that God sent Jesus to cover our sin, the high price, because we couldn't afford it. It demands a perfect life. That's why we just can't say to God, I'll just give you my life in exchange for my sin. 
because we're not perfect. We fall short of God's glory. The Bible shares that there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one that seeks God. All have turned away. So what was needed to cover the cost of sin was Jesus and his perfect life. So his perfect righteousness would be transferred to any who call upon his name and trust in him. And those who do that, their sin with the heavy cost that they have no way of paying is transferred to him. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus and his atonement made the way for you. The debt is paid. The wrath of God is averted. What remains is not a pile of rocks, but a cross and an empty tomb that declares that we are forgiven. That's an amen moment. See, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the truth. He is the life. And sin is very serious. It just doesn't affect you. When we sin in the body, it affects the whole church. What we think we're getting away with at our home or at our workplace or where people can't see, God sees. Because sin, is, it reaches far, it's wide, it's deep, and it's full of destruction. And my last question is not, does God have the right to keep you accountable? But does God have the right to keep us accountable as the body? In light of what Jesus has done for you, for me, for us, and for the church, does God have the right to keep us accountable? If you answer yes to that question, then we as the church need to rid sin from our lives. And as Pastor Rick shared last week, we need to stop limping towards the things of God and start pursuing If God is our God, let's go after him. Let's go. Because the word of God says, if you do sin, there's one who speaks on your behalf, who's who's at the right hand of the Father, speaking to the Father on our behalf. Right now, at this moment, Jesus is there. And if if we're saying yes, it's time to put God first in all areas of our lives. And I'm talking about all ages here. Let's go after God. Let us confess our sin, let us receive forgiveness, and live of the redeemed hope that God has provided in this world. As we move to communion, I'm going to allow us to sit in this, and I pray that we, as the church, that we would take a few minutes and deal with our trespasses against God. See, as we move to communion, Paul gave the Corinthian church a charge. He said, examine yourself before you partake or you'll bring judgment upon yourself. So let us do that. If there is sin in your life, give it to God. His grace abounds for you today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing that you're listening, that you bend your ear and your eyes search the whole world looking for those hearts who are there to serve you. And God, we pray that your eyes and your ears would rest here today. 
that you would hear the prayers offered by the congregation, by me, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you would apply grace to our lives, and that you would help us walk together as one body in the ways of the Lord. We want to thank you for Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for his journey here, his perfect life lived, his righteousness that has been accredited to our account. And God, we pray that you would forgive us for our sins, for we know that you have a great plan for the church. And God, we want to be in step with your plan. This is a hard sermon. And there is many things we could say today. And we'll get to discuss a little bit more in our smaller group tonight. But God, I pray that you would hear these prayers and bless your people. In your name I pray, amen.